Hey, Katie. Hi, Ben. Hi. Uh, so what have we got to talk about today? I read a really interesting paper recently from some folks at Google. Oh, I've heard of that company. Yeah, they do internet search and they make a lot of money from advertising. <laughs> yes. Um, and it's a paper about trying to understand the relationship between the short-term effect that you measure during an experiment, like an A-B test, and long-term effects on the things that you actually care about, like ad revenue, if you're Google. So I think that that's actually worth talking about, especially since sometimes we talk a lot about experiments and measuring stuff. And so they really try to bridge the gap between that kind of work and like what you care about in the long term if you're a data scientist or a business or whatever who's doing some of this stuff. Awesome. I always love to talk about time, and today we have the time. You are listening to Linear Digressions. So the title of this paper, let me make sure I put it up at the top, is um, Focusing on the Long Term, colon, It's Good for Users and Business. We'll have a link on LinearDigressions.com. And so the notion here, like the, the title actually captures it pretty well. When you're running an A-B test, usually that's pretty constrained in time. So you're changing something, adding some kind of experimental treatment to what some of your users see. And you want to see how some kind of metric changes as a result. But that's usually changed over the course of weeks or maybe months, whereas the effects can potentially linger for months to years. And you want to have some notion of what the long-term effects are going to be and not just the short-term ones. That seems like an impossible task. Because you can't or at see least, the future? <laughs> well, or at least the case-by-case case one. Just just because um, like the, the short-term to medium-term effects that you would see in an A-B experiment, um, A-B test, I don't know, like, I guess, is, is there really a way to know what the short, what the relationship is between the short-term effects versus the long-term effects? Or are you just kind of using your expertise in whatever the area is to make educated guesses about it? Yeah, great question. So in general, I don't know that there's a general answer to that, like that I could say for any kind of long-term effect, here's the relationship that it will have with a short-term metric. Um, but in this particular paper, they're looking at a, a very particular sort of long-term effect that happens with search ads. So as you know, Google makes money when someone executes a search on their site and then gets served up with an ad and then they click on that ad. And so let's think about the short term and long term of messing around with that system, you know, trying to improve it or whatever, if you're Google. So in the short term, if I'm Google, I can make lots of money really quickly by, say, putting way more ads into people's feeds. They're more likely to click on them on purpose or by mistake. Every time they click, I get a little bit of money. And if I were Google, I could probably make 20% more revenue tomorrow just by stuffing the feed with, mm -hmm. with lots more ads. Or conversely, um, another thing that Google does is they try to serve up ads that have high ad quality scores, which is a combination of how relevant that ad is to the search that the person is doing at the time and how high quality the landing page is that someone will get once they click on that ad. So 
instead of saying, I want to serve up high quality ads, instead I could say, I just want to serve up the ads that are going to make me the most money, regardless of whether they're high quality. And then maybe I'll get a bunch of like scammy ads that are at the top of all of the searches I return, that sort of thing. Right. This seems like, I guess this seems kind of fundamentally like the question that any business that prices anything has to face is like, do you price it high and make more money per sale? Or do you price it lower and make less money per sale? Except in this case, there's kind of an inertia to it, right? Like people are not going to stop using Google overnight or switch to another search engine overnight, but over time they will. Same with Facebook, same with any, any service that you've kind of signed up to and you've got a subscription or an account or you've got some uh, pattern of usage where you're used to going there or your friends are there. But over time, if things are low quality, then that, that inertia, uh, you, you see that move over time, but you don't necessarily see it as much in the short term. And so in this paper, when they're talking about this, this exact notion, yeah, you've nailed it. Um, they give it some terminology. They call it ad sightedness or ad blindness, which is, it's the same concept. It's just sort of whether users are being trained to pay attention to the ads because they're high quality and they give users results that are useful to them. Or if they're low quality, ad blindness. I mean, I don't know about you, but there are certain websites and stuff that I watch that always have ads in the same place. Like imagine like a banner ad at the top of a screen. Like I feel like I don't even see those anymore. I know they're there, but my brain just blocks them out because I don't know, there's certain ads that I just never, there's never been anything interesting or useful that's been advertised to me in certain places on certain pages. So I just don't, I don't even look anymore. Does that Mm. happen to you? Well, I, I'm the wrong person to ask that question. Is an because ad blocker? If, no, I mean, yes, but also if something is really bothering me about a web page, then I will write some JavaScript to remove it for me. So I'm probably not the typical not user the target of a demographic here. Nah. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, your point totally makes sense. You know, well, like if you're me, skimming yeah. through a magazine, you're, you're going to be trying to generally ignoring the ads. I was going to say, or like maybe you're old enough to remember like, when I was a kid and my parents used to videotape uh, TV shows for me to <laughs> yeah. watch afterwards and you'd like fast forward through the commercials. It's kind of like yeah. that. Yeah. And, and you got the timing down on the VHS oh, yeah. if you had it. Yeah. It's like an art being able to like restart it at just the right time. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. So, but hopefully by now, most of the folks who are listening to this, you, you have some idea. There's this notion of ad sightedness or ad blindness. And so when you're running an A-B test and you're tweaking, say, the way that ads get served up in search, whether it's the actual ads themselves that are getting served up or something about like the layout or the place that they occupy on the page, the number of ads that you're serving, like those are all things that you might be A-B testing. And so as you're running the A-B test over the course of a few days or a few weeks or maybe a, a, a few, like a low number of months, there's a certain amount of extra engagement that you could see out of your treated population, the ones who are seeing the change. But that if you were to leave that change in place for a very long time, then you would see user behavior start to change and adapt as ad sightedness or ad blindness sets in and users start to change their behavior in kind of a long-term way to compensate for the changes that you made. 
So when we're talking about short-term versus long-term, that's the specific flavor of short-term versus long-term that they're interested in is can we measure what they call the, I think it's called like the learning effect or uh, no, actually uh, they call it learned impact. So what is the the short-term impact or the short-term effect that we see from this change? What is the learned impact? Um, So after the users have kind of learned a new set of behavior that's what they're trying to disentangle. You know, um, just a thing to mention, I don't know if this blog post goes into it, but there are some changes which are kind of user independent, where you can make a change and uh, if you show it to one user and not another user, that's okay. But then there are other things like large features that you might decide to roll out. And this is actually especially true on uh, sites like Facebook, where you have network effects and you have people interacting with each other. So you can't really roll out a feature to uh, a tenth of the population or half of the population when the feature kind of relies on being available to everyone. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. That's interesting. So how how, did it th- how do you think about testing that then? I have no clue. Okay. <laughs> I, I never had to do anything like that when I was at Facebook, but there are some things like... Oh, gosh, I can't remember any of the examples, but there are some features that they decided to roll out to everyone, pretty much. You know, actually, maybe safety check was one of those things, because it kind of felt cruel and wrong to take a feature that is intended to help people in a crisis and withhold it for some from, for, um, from some amount of the population. I don't work at Facebook anymore, so I'm not as concerned about talking about it. But of course, my views are my own and all of that jazz. Um, But yeah, I guess sometimes you can't really test it and you just have to roll it out. Site redesigns are similar things. If you have a really large site redesign and you're pretty sure you're going to do it, you might just pull the trigger, do it for everyone. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, there's an an analog in clinical trials if you're thinking about uh, drug testing where, you know, very often they'll have the new treatment that they're trying to test and they're testing it against uh, like standard of care, which is kind of the, the normal treatment for how that disease is treated, or it'll be a placebo depends a little bit on the case. Um, And so, yeah, there's uh, occasionally clinical trials where the, the effect of the, especially of the new treatment is so strong and so much better than the alternative that they'll actually cut the trial short because it's, the the, re, the rationale being that it's unethical to prevent the popul a population of people from getting access to the more effective treatment when you you've gathered enough evidence to know that it's more effective. Right. So you kind of time box your experiment, but in some extenuating circumstances, you can cut it short if you get enough evidence that you don't need to let the experiment roll out to its entire time boxed amount of time. Yeah, right. Although it is worth mentioning, and, and then we'll bring it back to the topic at hand. Right, like yeah. that that comes at some cost uh, to the to the knowledge that you gain from the experiment. So the effect size that you're able to measure, let's say after a few weeks of collecting data, like it might be a big enough effect size that you know that one of the you know the new treatment is much more effective than the old one, for example. But 
it might be the case where if you had allowed the the, the trial to continue all the way until the end, then you would have had um, you would have been able to collect more data and you would have been able to measure with more confidence exactly how much better. And in the case of drug trials, maybe that doesn't matter to you, like how much worse some alternative is than than it is what you were than the the new thing that you're going to introduce into the market or whatever. But it's worth pointing out that like it doesn't come at zero cost. It comes at some cost for figuring out, being able to measure some of these things with more precision. Right. That makes sense. Anyway, we've gotten a, anyway, a bit off course. Yeah. So, but the point that I was, I was um, trying to wander over toward is that, um, so they have this notion of there's a learned impact of a new way of serving up ads, let's say in the case of Google. Um, and so what they want to, what you want to measure is, or what this paper is about in large part is how do you actually measure that learning effect? And methodologically measuring the learned impact is a little bit tricky because a straightforward experiment would be, well, we give one group the treatment, we give a second group the control. Um, we're going to see a difference between those two groups, probably, right? But the thing that's a little bit tricky is that we do not know in as, as the experiment is ongoing, we don't know if the difference between those two groups is because they're getting different treatments or if it's because one of the groups is learning in response to the treatment and the other one isn't. So getting the treatment and learning in response to the treatment are like kind of the same thing when the, when the experiment is ongoing, but you want to untangle them from each other. So what you have to do in order to measure the learned impact is you have to have one of your groups that you expose to the treatment for a while, but then you turn the treatment off and you see how that group responds. Um, oh, and, interesting. Yeah. So now we're back in a regime huh. where you're, you're still comparing it to a control group, but the time when you are doing the comparison is when they're, when both the treatment and the control group are getting the control, but the treatment group has been exposed to the treatment group to the treatment in the past. So interesting. You're, you're seeing so differences. Yeah. You're seeing the yeah. differences between the two groups, but it's no longer because they're getting different versions of the website or whatever. It's because one of them has, has previously gotten a different version of the website has learned some kind of different behavior. And now mm -hmm. you're measuring that different behavior. Said poetically, it almost feels like you're you're measuring the afterglow rather than the thing itself. Yeah, yeah, no, I think that that's right. And so the paper goes into a couple different methods that they devised at Google for ways that you can actually expose these groups and then get good measurements of of what the learning effect, the learned impact is. And so I'll, I'll actually refer folks just to the paper itself for some of the technical discussion here. It's not, it's not overly uh, technical to follow along. I think we've kind of captured the crux of it. There's, there's two different methods that can be used together. Um, one of them is, well, I'll, I'll give a, a quick explanation of the simpler one. It's kind of what we've already described. It's called the post-period learning measurement. So the idea is that you have your treatment and your control group, let's say group A and group B, you, you split them up um, and you take a measurement beforehand to make sure that if you've randomized properly, you shouldn't see any difference in behavior between the two groups. Then group A gets the treatment and group B gets the control and you run the experiment for a while 
and then group A goes back to the control, and group B has been on the control all along. And then you measure the difference in, this is what we now call the post period. It's after you've done the experiment, you measure the difference between the two groups, and that gives you a notion of what the learned impact was because it's the difference between those the two groups after one of them has gotten the treatment and the other one hasn't. That's a really neat way of handling that. I I've kind of I've thought about this a little bit just kind of casually on my own, but have never read anything about it and I've never really come to anything like that. That's just really clever. I think that regardless of whether that specific methodology will work though, I think it's important for all of us to just be cognizant of the long-term impacts of our changes on either our customers or, you know, whatever, who, whoever it is that we're serving or whatever it is that we're doing. Our changes have short-term benefits that we can very easily measure and long-term benefits that sometimes we just forget about. And actually, that that's definitely a criticism that I have in Silicon Valley with a lot of companies is it feels almost like they're over-optimizing to their metrics and most of their metrics are measuring short-term things because, frankly, it's hard to measure long-term things. And, frankly, humans have short attention spans and developers and, and product people are humans. So that's at least my biggest takeaway from this episode. Yeah, I feel the same way. I thought that this was a really interesting paper because I, I couldn't have said it better than, than you already did about how how much harder it can be sometimes to think in the long term. But, you know, nonetheless, that's really important. I think we all recognize that um, doing something in the short term to drive up your, your metrics for a little while is probably not actually a good idea if in the long term it's going to undermine uh, your user experience or their trust in you or any other good important things, uh, you know, security or quality of the product that you're making, all of those sorts of things. So, um, but I thought that this paper was really great because if you are somebody who thinks about this and was at a little bit of a loss before about how to think about the long term when maybe you only have the resources to measure the short term, this is an, a nice paper that kind of shows you one way through for a specific use case. And um, who knows, perhaps has some uh, inspiration for folks who want to do something similar in their own uh, experiments and applications. Linear Digressions is a creative commons endeavor, which means you can share or use it any way you like. Just tell them we said hi. To find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us, and we'll see you next time.